Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by U.S. Benchmark Series by FM Investments. You can go to ustreasuryetf.com to learn more about their ETFs that invest directly into treasury bills and treasury bonds. That's ustreasuryetf.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Michael, one of our sentiment gauges here that's totally internal, we're, we're, we're holding on to it, is, is our inbox. And in the like the heady twenty late twenty twenty early twenty twenty one days, it was you know these two or three times leveraged tech ETFs and trading individual stocks and meme stocks and all this stuff. And now the majority of our questions are about boring old bonds and how do I lock in yield and how do I buy T bills. Right. Credit to our audience. We didn't get a lot of memes. Like there wasn't a ton of people being like, "Why aren't you guys uh, investing in AMC?" Like that's true. There was a few, but not many. People were smart skeptical. audience. It, it was more like, should I not? Why should I not just put all my money into the Nasdaq and that sort of thing? But, but the the bond yield stuff is interesting because I don't think people have had to think about bonds before. Like if you figure the the thirty years from like nineteen eighty on, interest rates were falling. It didn't really matter what you invested in. If you invested in something in the fixed income market, you did you did pretty well because you had a high starting yield and yields were falling. And then when they hit generational lows in twenty twenty. Everyone kind of said, well, what am I going to do in bonds anyway? So I'm just going to go mostly to stocks or I'm going to sit in cash or something. So people haven't really had to be very thoughtful. And now that rates have moved so far, so fast, and then the yield curve has been changing from this inverted thing where the T-bill yields were way higher than bond yields, and now bond yields are catching up, people are being forced into thinking about bonds in a more reasonable manner. And, and for once, it's, it's, it's about yield as well, not just like, what am I going to do? Well, we spent a lot of time on this show with Alex Morris talking about the risks to the long end, the risks to the short end, but that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to win, right? Like there's a lot of ways that you can successfully implement an approach to fixed income and it could be uh, a happy medium. It could be, you know, whatever it is, there's just, there's just a lot of opportunity for the first time in, in really in our career, which is which is a wonderful thing. So, well, and, and the, the the thing is about about that is you have to kind of define what you're looking for because some people could say I'm putting a trade on and I'm betting that rates are going to stay higher for longer, inflation is going to get control, and I'm sticking away from duration. Or you could say I'm going into duration because I think a recession is coming and rates are going to fall. And other people are thinking, no, no, no I just want something safety and I don't want any volatility, so we're going to go short. Or you could say I want to lock in yields for longer. So there's like different avenues you could approach depending on how you think about the world in this way, which is interesting. All right. I paused because I thought about a joke. It was really bad, so I'm going to spare you. With no further ado, here is Alex Morris from FM Investments. It's good. Fixed income humor doesn't work. We're joined today by Alex Morris. Alex is the chief investment officer of FM Investments. We're going to start with the long end of the curve today. So we're talking all about fixed income and the benchmark series suite of direct maturities. Is that What do we call it? On-the-run single maturities. On the run, single maturities. Okay. Okay. All right. So the yield curve had been inverted for a long time. I think this is, I think this is the second longest streak since uh, 
outside of 2007 of interest rate uh, inversion. And the curve is uninverting. And it's happening not because the Fed is cutting rates. Obviously, that's not happening. But because the long end of the curve is has been screaming higher for the past couple of months. There's been like a lot of debate. Uh, and I'm sure it's not it's not just one thing. It's probably not even just two things. But in, in your opinion, why do you think it took so long for the long end of the curve to respond to stronger economic activity? And why do you think it happened so quickly? It's a really good question. I think you're right. It has a lot of a lot of myriad answers. I think that the simplest one is that statement of we're going to talk about the long end of the curve. It's something that people hadn't really said for two, three, maybe 10, 12 years, right? There was just no interest. You look at the yield curve, it was a flat line and no one much really worried or cared. There's one moment we could talk about. We probably should spend a little time talking about, which is the Bank of Japan. And I get they're not the treasury of the Fed, but they probably had more impact on the rate and the material interest or, or lack thereof in the 10-year, US 10-year, than anyone else has had in a long time, right? Governor Yoshida comes out a few months ago and says, basically, we're going to stop propping up the Japanese bank 10-year. And when they do, the 10-year US becomes unpegged and its yield sort of starts to fall in line with the rest of the yield curve. Because that for a long while had been this sort of second inversion, point, like a divot, if you looked at it. On top of that, once that happened, I think folks realized that Recession by virtue of the Fed cutting the front end, because that's usually when you see an inverted yield curve, you think recession, but that it's not because the yield curve is inverted. It's because the Fed usually reduces rates suddenly, and that creates the, the actual recession. That didn't happen. And it happened long enough now that folks had an opportunity to trade out of those positions and allow the rest of the curve to really come in line with what I think is a more reasonable long-term expectation. Right? I, I don't think it was fair to say that the U.S. long-term growth expectations were 100 basis points. It is a more 400 basis points, 500 basis points operation 30 years out from now. And you should kind of want that kind of return, right? Can we talk the nomenclature here? Is it disinverting, uninverting, steepening? What do you prefer? Uh, I like steepening, but it's that that means a lot of things to a lot of people. So I guess normalizing, maybe? Is that fair? So I guess I guess a lot of people, investors, maybe the bond market itself assumed, yeah, that this, this uninversion steepening would happen because the Fed would be forced to cut rates if and when the economy sold or went into recession, and, and it's the opposite. Is there any precedent for this happening, especially this quickly, where, uh, I mean, I guess it, maybe the early 80s or something, where the long end sort of did the uninverting here? If you look at the 80s, the long end did some of it, but rates just got so high in the short end, right? And, and the housing market went so wonky that it was kind of hard to justify that. I think this is, this is truly a wrinkle. And this is where we kind of remember when we're playing with economic or economy-wide global macro things, looking back at history is not often the best answer of what's going to happen this time, right? They tend to be events that we then write books about because they're exogenous. Like this is when something changed. Every time there's a, a crisis of some sort, the Fed, the Treasury and Congress get together and they redistribute their rights. And then all of a sudden, everything they did the last time doesn't matter because they have a different rule set. We got to forget that we regularly forget that. I think this time, though, the, the big difference, right, because I don't think there's been a time where this has happened as quickly, certainly not on a relative basis, going 5x in the last 12 months on a yield basis, is that folks didn't believe the Fed would actually stick to it. I think that bet you saw on the long end of the curve was a belief that the Fed would you know, chicken out and that they would just drop rates quickly to go back to the way things were. And they absolutely did not. And they've made very clear they don't intend to, to give it up anytime soon either. You mentioned the bet on the on the long end of the curve. There's we we've spoken about this. The chart floating around of the massacre in TLT. It's in a deeper drawdown than the S and P five hundred was in the dot com bubble. That's the sort of carnage we're talking about here. 
And yet total assets in TLT kept rising, which is very inconsistent with investor behavior. Usually people run for the exits when they're when they're feeling that level of acute pain. But how much of that rise in assets, I, I think it's probably impossible to, to untangle. How much of that rise in total AUM is from like short sellers getting involved there? Well, so if you looked at the stats as of, you know, yesterday, as it were, so then the last week, you know, out of, call it mid to end of October, about 12% of the open interest was in short sellers. So there is a lot of, you know, creating to short. That's actually that, not nothing, but not everything. I mean, not even close to everything. Yeah, it's not even close to everything. Now, let's not forget there's there's a, a triple X inverse uh, and a triple X long um, TLT. Yeah, I tried. I tried. I tried to buy one of those things. Did not go well. But credit to me. Took a quick loss. Three, three to four percent gone. Yeah, but you know what you're doing. So you got to know. There's some folks who are going to buy that thing and hold on to it, not realizing what's about to happen to them. And I, I think that the short answer for why folks are interested is maybe folks are doing the right thing, right? All of a sudden, if there is interest from sellers, that's when you want to be buying, right? If folks are getting fearful and getting out, you want to get a little greedy on it. The problem with TLT is it's a great trading vehicle, but it's it's kind of hard from a you know theory standpoint because it owns a bunch of stuff greater than t- 20 years, right? It really has the long end of the curve of which the government only issues 20 years and 30 years every quarter. So there's not that much to go around. There's some zeros in there that help keep the duration really long, but you're not talking about things that have a duration that's north of 10, 15 years. That's like a, a 15x leverage impact, right? If you look at that, you're, you're buying into that idea. And if you were going to buy a 5% 30-year as a cash bond and hold on to it and just know that at the end of 30 years, you're going to get all your money back in 5% a year, that's a great idea. But buying as an ETF and now being in there with a bunch of other low coupon items, you're not going to get what you expect. Like most folks, I think, are looking at that and at the 20 and the, and the 30, yielding about 4.7 to 4.9 today, somewhere in that range. And thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to get that kind of yield. And what they get is 3.5% or less because the embedded coupon rates from those bonds is just so low. And so they don't get the experience they want. That's a good point because right now a lot of people are trying, they're saying like, okay, rates are higher, I want to lock them in. So maybe, yeah, maybe just sort of compare and contrast that, like buying an actual bond with buying one of these ETFs that has a constant maturity profile or duration or whatever it is. Yeah, so let's take the multi-bond funds, which are have been around for a long time. Right. And why we built the benchmark series, which is just one thing. And why why it was important to be very different. So if you're buying something that's 10 to 20 years or 10 to 30 years, you're gonna have to buy a lot of bonds in there. And there's no that diversification doesn't earn you any credit diversification, right? It's the same issuer, it's the government. All the bonds are the same. The theory that if one bond crashes, the other ones won't doesn't make any sense. If the government defaults on one debt, it's gonna default on all of the debt in theory. So you're not getting the diversification, you might hope. What you are getting is a difference in liquidity profile, right? The further away from all the run you go, the less liquid, so the greater the spread to buy or sell the thing. And you are picking up coupon differentiation. So if you have the same issuer risk, you might as well just try to maximize your yield or optimize for liquidity. And that's why we built the benchmark series. We didn't inherently want to build and launch a single treasury ETF because we thought it'd be fun for the marketing. We did it because the other tools weren't precise enough. And as we tried to buy a, say, three to seven year because we wanted an average of five, we found that some days we got seven, some days we got three, and we spent a lot of time fighting where that index was going. And, and it kind of makes sense. Right? If you think about why those indices were originally built, they were built around accounting principles of the government and how the government issues debt. And with all due respects to, to, to all of us as taxpayers, I, none of us really go to the government for our investing criteria. 
right? And how they want to do their accounting is, is their problem, but it shouldn't be my investment thesis. So we built the benchmark to give you that liquidity because the on the runs are just more liquid. They're, they tend to always be more liquid. And then separately, if you had a point on the curve you wanted to access, you should get that point. So when rates go up, you're constantly reinvesting that accrued income into a higher coupon, which is what you want to be doing. And when rates go down, you're constantly reinvesting in longer duration, taking advantage of that price move, again, which is the exact move you want to do. And that point moves on the curve up and down pretty readily. If you start looking at, say, three to seven years or 10 to 30, that's a pretty wide swap. And, and if we go back to high school calculus, you know, there's a lot more action that happens and a lot of things you don't expect. And bond math is hard enough as it is. Start putting that over multiple issuances. And we're going to talk about bond math in a second, but let me ask you a, a, a dumb question. So if I want to buy the 10-year today and lock in close to 5%, you could do that, right? You could, you could, you could buy a 10-year treasury uh, in various, various places. But if I'm buying the benchmark one, how does that work? So am I, am I really locking the 5%? In other words, like, is there, is there interest rate risk to the downside? What if the 10-year goes down to 3%? There is interest rate risk to the in general on that product. The good news is if rates go down to 3%, your principal value's gone up. And we've constantly reinvested in that. So you'll pick up that immediate price appreciation. You won't have to stick around for 10 years to actually recognize that total value. And if rates go, even if rates ticked a little higher now, because the coupon rate and just the yield of it is so high, we're actually not going to lose very much and your total return will still be net positive. So on the that long end, up to the 10-year, you shouldn't be interested in doing the role. And then at some point in the future, if you say, okay, I think rates are now going to be static forever and I really like what I've got, that's when you should lock in. And if you bought, say, U10 today, and then in three years decided that's the rate you wanted to lock in, you would do so with a fairly sizable increase in value, some more principle for you to invest and lock into. So just, just to be very clear on that point, so I'm not misunderstanding, buying something like U10, you're not locking in rates right? You're really just getting exposure to that part of the curve for better and for worse. Correct. Right. Yes. So his point is that, yeah, if rates go down, you'll get the price bump, but the, yeah, the yield will change too. Yeah. So your yield will go down, but in between five and three, right? With the duration on tenure, which is somewhere around seven and a half, you're going to get a very, you're going to be really happy with the price appreciation you get. And because of the ETF, you're going to get a capital gains tax-free other than it being in UTEC. And if you've been a U10 holder for 365 days, you will have converted that short-term capital gain in the underlying bond to a long-term capital gain for your portfolio, which is the trade you want to make. Good segue to the interest rate scenario analysis that your team sent to us here. And it shows the different parts of the curve from the two-year up to the 30-year and what happens if we have different interest rate moves, right? Interest rates rise 50 basis points or fall. If they rise 100, fall 100. And it, it looks now like we have a situation where if, if rates fall, bond prices are going to go up more than if rates rise and bond prices would fall, which I, I assume was probably the opposite in like 2020, right? So back in 2020, when yields were so low, you had the opposite situation where if, if rates rose, you were going to lose way more money than you would have made if rates would have fallen. Correct. So looking at this this different these different scenarios... Obviously, we're not going to have a situation where rates rise 100 basis points or fall 100 basis points for every bond, right? It's they move differently at different times. But like, what is like the sweet spot these days in terms of like more bang for your buck if rates fall? So looking at that, the heat map that we shared right now, that's the seven year, and so the seven year is pretty well traded. The five and the ten are substantially better traded. That's, they're just much more common for risk hedging across industry. So if you really like that, I'd probably split 
things between the five-year and the seven-year, sorry, the five-year and the 10-year, so UFIV and UTEN, which is where you'll you really get that same effective duration as the seven-year, but in two very highly liquid items that are well-traded, well-regarded, well well-talked about. So you're going to be really tuned into what's going on there. Michael and I were talking about the convexity piece here, which is kind of like a CFA thing we learned. And uh, we're curious because, correct me if I'm wrong, the basic idea here is that typically when interest rates fall, you're going to get a greater rise in price than the opposite, where if interest rates rise, then you'd see a small, is that, does it work like that where you get a little bit of a bigger bump on the upside than the downside? That's exactly what's happening. And you're also earning that coupon rate, right? So you care also about how quickly you're paying, how much you're paid. And you're paid so much now sufficiently quickly that your reinvestment of that earns you way more. And if rates fall, you've bought even more of that bond, right? So you're you're doing the exact right thing by reinvesting in an asset that's about to become a lot more profitable for you. And even while you're doing that, you're reinvesting at a higher rate of return than you were initially. So you're in that spot where it makes sense to be. And, and, and when you think about timing trades, which you know we always talk about you shouldn't be a market timer, you, you always fail at it. But this is one of those trades where you don't need to be day precise. It turns out that if you come in a little too soon on you know, the S&P 500, it, it could be very painful. You come in a few months too early on some of these duration trades, and it doesn't hurt as much. If you come in a month or two early, you actually make more than if you timed it just right, given how quickly assets and cash starts to move into these securities, where you get tighter spreads and you can sort of shop around for a deal at that point. If you look at the assets under management in some of your ETFs, T-bill, which is the, the three-month one, has 2.5 billion. Uh, X-bill, which is a six-month, has 500 million. But then as you, as you extend your duration, the assets drop dramatically. I wonder if this is probably the same story across other asset managers, just investors' preference for either ultra short or short duration, given that they have the mindset of, well, why would I ever bother with all the headache and volatility of the 10-year plus when I can get the same rate and have effectively zero volatility at the short end? Does that make sense to you? And, or, and do you think investors might be taking that too far? So it does make sense. And advisors and investors who've reached out tell us, you know, why would I not take what was a material yield in the short end, right, over just about anything else? And why would I take risk in the middle of the curve, particularly when the middle of the curve was still trading in the threes, right? It looked like if you believe that long-term, 3% was probably too low for long-term expectations for the U.S. with a more normal, you know, rate policy, then it didn't make sense to jump in yet. Now, I think we've seen that, particularly look at the 10-year, every time the 10-year touches above 5% for even a tick, it immediately gets bought up and goes back down. So we're starting to see kind of a natural ceiling for the market. But I, also, I, sh- I should mention that that posture for investors staying each or, either short or all short has actually been the right trade. It has been. It's, and they've also kind of made it the right trade, right? Assets leaving some of the other bits of the trade and coming to the short end has let bond prices decrease. And if you look at just the, the general selling pressure on the long end of the curve, there have been more sellers than buyers, right? Some of those sellers have been other governments and whatnot who move way more than individual investors, but that's been the, the case. And it's been a good trade. It was theoretically, you know, mathematically, CFA-wise, the right trade to make. And then the market moved in such a way that it guaranteed it was the right trade to make. So you, you think there is some sort of line in the sand, or at least that's how investors are acting at like 5%, which is hilarious to me because investment people just love round numbers. Like, 
if you have, if you get four point nine five percent, you probably shouldn't bat an eye versus five. But that there's something to be so you, you you're seeing some activity there when it hits five percent. Like that's when people are stepping in. Yeah, every time that it's it's flirted with that, all of a sudden buyers come back, right? Otherwise, it shouldn't it couldn't theory go higher, and it just hasn't. Uh, we'll see what happens later this week when the Treasury does its reallocation because it's trying right now. The Treasury is about twenty five percent, so one in four bonds is a bill, and it's trying to get down to one in five, which. It's kind of a tricky thing for it to do because it's got a lot of debt it needs to finance on the longer end of the curve, which is ever so slightly cheaper because it's inverted now, but it's a good thing for it to do. The one thing that it gives up is flexibility. If every few years or every few months it feels like now Congress is going to have a debt ceiling debate, the one thing you want the Treasury to do is be fluid, right? More on the short end. When it makes the commitment to the long end, it now runs into some other issues, but it's, it's actively trying to do that. And what it's about to do then is, is add more 10, 20, 30 year to the market. We'll see if that allows it to break through that sort of technical level. And I'm not a chartist or a technician. I don't, I don't I generally don't follow that, but I do know enough of the market does and they move their assets like they do, then it tends to make itself right. So we're going to see what happens if supply goes way, way up. Can it break through five? And if it does, does it have a natural stopping point at the next fraction? And, and I don't know. There's no fundamental reason why it does other than Long-term expectations will kind of need to hold it in check, right? If we look at some other banks, like let's look at the, the lending rate out in, in Argentina, it's 118%, which is just kind of fun to think about, like a short- What does that mean? Uh, well, it means that they have to offer a very high level of return to get folks to overcome this very material level of inflation. So it's very different story than us, but you know, it goes to show you there's a lot happening in the world. The question would be though, what, what would happen if we get through five? And, and in theory, Ben, you're right. The answer is five, five, one, five, two. What does it matter? But practically speaking, certain buyers just, they, they become more attracted at a certain rate and they have long-term liabilities they need to manage. So a lot of the folks who are going to buy the long end, they're going to buy that bond. They're going to stick it away and they're never going to see it again until it hits maturity. To me, the risk is, I don't know if it's asymmetric, it's too strong of a word, but that's, I think that's how I feel. So the 10-year, according to this interest rate scenario analysis that you made a couple of, I guess it's probably a week or so ago, but directionally, it's still right, even if it's not precise. Uh, if if the 10-year goes up another 100 basis points, which that'd be a lot, that'd be a big move from this point, you would lose 2.6% over the next 12 months because the starting level of interest rates is sufficient to offset most of, more, most of the pain. So that's that's the risk there. Again, not a, not a huge risk, uh, but a risk nonetheless. The risk at the short end is what exactly? That the market is going to sniff out the Fed cutting before you will. And so uh, you'll have all that reinvestment risk at the short end. Like, is that how you see it? it that's what it is. If the Fed were to, to cut, right, there isn't that much really for these rates to go up, right, for the bond prices to go up. They're offered at a discount and they trade pretty tightly. So since there's just they're so, I don't say they're just rate insensitive. That's not entirely true, but they're of limited sensitivity. Like the odds that the government doesn't repay its bills in the next, you know, call it three months are pretty low. So you're not going to see a tremendous amount of action. You'll pick up a little price appreciation, but just it, it won't be as massive as on the long end. Where it gets interesting is like, oh, Bill, or you too, that one, two-year level, where now there's enough duration in there that you're going to see some price movement. And the two-year, which is usually the hedge against inflation and the sort of short-term inflation expectation, is where I think you'd see the most price action there. And I doubt that that, is, that doesn't really have 100 basis points of yield give to it. So it's not going to run against you 100 basis points. If the Fed starts cutting and the short end comes down and inflation is in check and we all believe that, and the core numbers recently give us reason to believe that, 
that at least for the short term, then you're going to see some bond action there. So prices will go up, yield will come down. But I think it will be, I think that's a good place for investors. That's a good return. I mean, if you if you bought into the two year today, and I told you in six months you could pick up seven eight percent in it, that's a really good trade in a risk free. It's bet. amazing. Yeah, and those are the kind of asymmetries that you're seeing now. Now that said, like we talked about, you don't have to be perfect on the timing here, but you have to accept that duration does have that leverage effect, right? That's the convexity word that everyone gets afraid of. And then, you know, as a, as a person in the rate space, I have to tell you, convexity is a second derivative. So it sometimes behaves a little differently than folks expect it to be. But the the good news is if rates go down um, in the short end, prices have gone up and that's where you want to be. And if you don't, you just stick around, and you get paid your interest, which is still material. So it's it's a good place and a safe place to be hanging out while you're waiting for risk assets. To, right, to, to your it. point, there, there was no margin of safety a few years ago, and now there's a way bigger margin of safety, even if you're wrong. Exactly. And so, so Michael and I have been talking for a, a few for a month now or so about like, well, why are rates rising? People keep giving us their ideas and their guesses, and some people say, well, people are losing faith in the U.S. government because of all this debt ceiling stuff. And some people say, no, it's all supply and demand. The Fed went and bought a bunch of treasuries, then they pulled out, and then they're, it, the government's issuing trillions of dollars of debt. So that that's part of it too. And on the other hand, I, I just think sometimes the bond market isn't as smart as we give it credit for. Maybe you can, you can change my mind on this, but I feel like the bond market, if, if it's like predicting the economy, has done a terrible job in the last three years, like predicting inflation, predicting the fact that the Fed's going to stick around. Am I wrong here? It seems like the long end of the bond curve has been behind the eight ball at every move. Am I wrong? I think you're right. I, mean, I wish I could disagree with you so we could have a fervent debate, but I think unfortunately the bond market just has never gotten this right. It's a bit like a, a growth equity person looking at their DCF model, telling me, well, as a result of these interest rate changes, therefore Apple has to go down 50%. I've never seen a DCF model that's right yet. Don't expect you tomorrow. And I think the bond market had the same, they were caught off guard. And a lot of this is, again, if you're you're dealing with complex problems, right? You've got the Fed governors who are making decisions, and those are 14 voting members who behave differently than the prior 14, right? So it's not like there's, it's not like the odds with a set of dice that never change. You have people who are making different decisions, responding to different political environment, different political appointees, different viewpoints. And the rule set that they can operate under has changed dramatically since the last GFC. And, and going into the GFC was different than it was coming out of it. So you're getting different tool sets, you get different sets of responses. And let's remember, you know, Chair Powell was very much for keeping interest rates low until he got reappointed. And then he, in that first meeting, he had the opportunity to start to raise them and puts us on an aggressive path to do that. And if you read between the lines, that was, that was always going to happen. So I think the bond market was more aspirational uh, in that sense. The other problem is the bond market is really big. And there are some super large players who move very, very slowly. So... It takes a while for the message to take hold, and they can't move a trillion dollars in a day. Right? The market's big enough to absorb it, but they try not to. So even if they're smart enough and they're right, it takes so long for everyone to start articulating those views. It may take a year or two to start to unwind and, and move to a new consensus. In that sense, do you mean like institutional buyers or like governments or what? Who, like is the slow movers? Institutional buyers in particular, um, you know, who buy these and they're going to hold on to them. If you're an insurance company, you're buying a lot of debt. But you're buying that debt because you have a liability that you're looking to offset, right? So if you have life insurance policies, you're waiting to either collect premiums and never pay it out, or you know, upon death of individuals, pay it out. So they've got they've got you know, actuarial tables and things that they have to, to manage to. Same is true for folks in the mortgage market. 
because there's repayment risk, less so today than there was three years ago, obviously. So they have other folks who are in there. If those events happen, then they unwind the trades. If they don't, they just keep holding on to the, that debt for a long, long time. And that 30-year bond they bought eventually just makes its way to behaving like a two-year, but so much of that two-year debt is just locked away in someone's cabinet that's never coming back out. And then you got the governments that they get involved. There, it's hard for them to move money quickly. It's hard for Congress to do anything at all, much less to have other governments get behind a new fiscal theory. And selling government debt, particularly if you're an ally, has some, some implication. Right, so you got to think that one through and act carefully. It takes a long time to unwind, and those are big dollar amounts, right? They're not buying million dollar denominations. If we could figure out, or if, if somebody told you where rates would be twelve months from now, it would make all this a lot easier because bonds are, you know, essentially just a function of arithmetic. Uh, you mentioned, and of course, of course, we don't know, but you mentioned like consensus a second ago, and and where that might be. This is a notoriously tricky thing to resolve where consensus is. I think a lot of that is probably personal biases. Uh, we were talking last week that it feels like consensus is higher for longer, uh, and that that happened pretty recently. But at the same time, if that actually were the case, and how do you explain all the flows into into longer dated uh, treasury ETFs? Now that could be, I don't know. Wh- how do you unpack this? Where do you th- where do you think consensus is these days? So I think consensus is higher for longer now. We've been there for most of the year, but we've been there for one very simple reason. This kind of, you know, there's two obvious stated mandates of the Fed, right? Price stability, which is inflation and employment. And they've been on a weird thing to get rid of to get rid of both inflation and employment at the same time, which is a spot the Fed hasn't been particularly adept at or never put in before. But the other side of that equation is the sort of unstated mandate that they've been adhering to, which is better communication. Do what you say, tell the market what's about to happen, and work hard to, to be honest about that. And if we took the Fed at their word, that they were actually trying to whip inflation and they weren't going to turn back. And they have done that. And then we took them at their word. And they said they were going to slow down and be more data dependent. And they've done that. And I, I think we take, I take them and think folks should take them at their word today. They will try to keep rates stubbornly high for about as long as they can, because the economy seems to be resilient. Like we spent decades trying to build a resilient economy. We got one. And now the result of that is to make sure that they don't turn back too soon and risk overheating this, or more importantly, throwing it into overdrive too fast and the whole thing stalls out. So I think as a result, they're going to try to do that. Some of the folks in the long end, I think, are looking at an opportunity to start trading in and get some of that duration assets because they don't think rates in the long end will go that much higher, given just reasonable growth expectations and what's happening elsewhere in the world. You know, it maybe it makes sense for the U.S. debt to be you know, to trade at a higher yield than, say, the German Bund. But if you look at other sovereign debts that are trading in the you know, eights, nines, tens, it doesn't make sense for our yields to be higher than that. So where do you trade in the middle? And I think, I think a lot of longer duration investors are seeing this as a pretty happy medium, and they're taking the bet that this is about where it goes. Plus or minus 50 basis points is okay. Plus or minus 100 or 200 is going to get me get my face ripped off on the 30-year. But in the 10-year, I'm going to survive for a while. And it's a good time to start making that trade. Alex, as we as we wrap this up, just one more time, what are some of the biggest differences or the key differences between the pro, the ETFs that are on the market that might target, say, a range, whether it's three to seven, seven to ten, whatever, versus the benchmark series that target a single maturity? Like, what are what do investors need to know? So the the multi bond products are going to own a lot of different bonds. So that means they have different liquidity profiles. So it costs more to sell for the ETFs to to buy and sell them. 
and that might impact your, your price that you're going to see. And they also have different coupons. So if you can't just look at the current coupon rate of, say, the two-year and expect to get that from a product that owns between one, th- one year and three years, as an example. And that average holding in that ETF is going to change. So if you bought between one and three years, you're going to own a lot of different you know, bits of, of paper that, on average, end somewhere between one year and three years. But they don't always, on average, end at two years. Whereas if you bought U2, you will always get two years because we own one thing and one thing only, and that's the on-the-run two-year. And that's true across the curve. So what you see is exactly what you get with the U.S. benchmark series. Not always the case with the multi-bonds. And just last thing, so you're, you're rolling that every two weeks? So the two-year gets rolled every month when it's issued. The ten, So between one year and 10 years, so one to the 10, is every month. 10, 20, and 30 is every quarter. And then beneath that, happens on a more regular basis, which can be up to every week. And you know, the government's pretty regular, but every now and again, it misses a week or it does two in one week, so. Alex Morris, appreciate the time, that was great. Thank you. Thanks to Alex again, he's always a great guest. Remember, ustreasuryetf.com to learn more about their whole suite of products. They have three month, six month, 12 month T-bills, anywhere from two to 30 years on the treasury ETFs and send us an email, animalspirits at thecompoundnews.com. Still getting used to that one, but I got it. Nailed it. See you next time. (laughs) 